Centerway Church. I'm Meredith and my friend Eric and I are here to welcome you and to give you some information to start off our gathering today. Good morning to everyone gathered on the live platform this Sunday morning. Please feel free to say hi in the chat as we started. We absolutely love seeing your comments. We also like to say hi to a few other groups of people. First, a special hello to our student watch party and to any other watch parties out there. We also know some of you are watching or listening later on in the week, so hello to you too. Mm -hmm. We'd also like to take a minute to acknowledge any guests that we have joining us for the first time. You're about to hear some information that we talk through every single week, uh, and we trust it's helpful to everyone, but certainly it's really geared toward your first gathering at Centerway. We know that being a first-time guest online has its challenges, um, but we hope you still feel at home here. We're gonna do our best to cover some significant things, but you can still free feel free to check out our website for additional information. If you're gathering live, there are some helpful tabs right on the online platform. You can share information with us and that would be really helpful to follow up and get some feedback. Uh, you also can explore next steps and find previous messages. And if you call Centerway home and you'd like an easy way to give, there's a tab to do that as well. If you have any questions or you'd like prayer during the gathering, just request prayer and one of our hosts will answer you privately in a separate chat. If you're not on the live platform and instead you're watching or listening to the message later in the week, uh, many of the things that Eric just mentioned can happen through our website. And now for everyone gathered, please reach out if you have any questions, feedback, ideas, or need prayer. We would love to just connect with you. All you have to do is email us at connect at centerwaychurch.com. Yeah, besides reaching out via email, there are other ways for you to engage. After this gathering, you can check out our social media and make use of the resources on our website. On the messages page, guess what you'll find? <laughs> you got it. <laughs> messages, all of our messages, including messages just for kids, which is great if you have kiddos in your home. They learn from the same scripture text that we do each week, so you'll be able to discuss the application together. Also on that page, you'll find resources related to the message, uh, just like wallpaper images, links to the Spotify playlist for the series, and access to our Monday, Wednesday, Friday devotionals. Now, one quick note about the devotionals. If you want to receive them directly to your inbox instead of going to the website, you can subscribe on the Next Steps page. And that Next Steps page is great because it has some additional resources and ways to grow. It really is. And um, speaking of growing, we love that every week we close out our message with an application. Sometimes it's a statement or an action step, and sometimes it's just a question to consider throughout the week. And we get feedback every week from you guys about how you're applying the text. But last week, we had a really unique application. And we created a hashtag if anyone felt comfortable sharing how they were processing unbelief with God. And we were blown away at what you guys created. Some songs and notes and poems, photos, sketches, and the list goes on. Then um, we wanted to let you know we have a highlight saved on our Instagram page with some of them. Uh, there were posts and stories that were shared from private profiles that if you don't follow them, they may not show up for you if you search that hashtag. But I think you'll still get a good idea of what people are processing and it's super encouraging. And we also want to encourage you that it's not too late to tag us if you want to use that hashtag. Um, and of course, it's just never too late to keep applying the text um, from this message in the series or even past series in other messages. Yeah, it was ridiculously encouraging to be able to see how so many people were applying the text. Mm -hmm. now, well, before we wrap up here, we again want to mention a couple of dates to put on your calendar. Both of these will be in-person gatherings. Uh, one, uh, The first one is a vision meeting on Sunday, March 28th at 4 p.m. Uh, that'll be in addition to our Sunday morning gathering. It's geared toward our Centerway stewards, but it's open to anyone who wants to be there. The second one is Easter Sunday. 
And we cannot wait to see many of you in person that day. We'll still have an online gathering on Easter as well, but both online and in person will be at 4 p.m. on April 4th. Now, all the details are on the calendar page of the website, and you should have received info via email as well. I'm super excited for that, Eric. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a great day. Uh, well, now here's what to expect for the rest of the gathering today. Jasmine will be reading the scripture text for us. Claude will be communicating from the Bible. And then Eric and I will close out the gathering with some ways to respond in worship. And then right after that, you can join us live on Instagram or Facebook as a way to respond through song. Now here's Jasmine with a text for today. Hi everyone, my name is Jasmine and I will be reading scripture today. We will be reading from Mark chapter 9 verses 30 through 37. They went on from there and passed through Galai, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the 12. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Thank you, guys. Hello, my name is Claude, and my wife Meredith and I are the lead pastors here at Centerway Church. Excited you have the opportunity to be with us today as we continue in our series, Greater Expectations. And uh, this morning, the message is entitled Success, so Greater Success Expectations. And uh, as I thought about uh, success, I can think about a lot of different times that uh, I've engaged with people that have talked about how they've had pursuit for, of success or how I've pursued some form of success. I remember one time in particular, I was, uh, I was playing a game of dodgeball. And uh, I know that in a lot of schools today, dodgeball is not permitted. And I was playing an even more archaic version uh, where people would line up against a brick wall and you would throw the dodgeball at them and they had to like move from the wall. And if you're as ancient as I am, you know what I'm talking about. If not, maybe that's a horrifying thought. But in either case, it was a pretty fun game. And uh, playing dodgeball and it was my turn to throw the dodgeball and everybody was lined up and I thought, man, this is my opportunity. Uh, there was one kid in particular that would just dominate in the game of dodgeball when we would play it this way and he would just get accolades and high fives and attention and everybody thought he was so awesome because he would win every time he would just clear everybody out and I thought you know what this is my moment for greatness like this is going to be an amazing opportunity for success right here that's how I define success I'm going to clear everybody out and then they're probably 
they're probably going to lift me up on their shoulders and declare me the best dodgeballer in all of the school and carry me into the classroom and just shower me with praise and attention and love and affirmation and all the things that I wanted. And uh, as you can imagine, the way that I'm setting it up, that's not exactly what happened at all. There was something I realized after the fact, um, the kid that got all the praise, all the attention and everything uh, was very cautious in this game to throw the dodgeball at people's feet and legs. Uh, I realized that after the fact because I chose a very different approach. I thought middle of the body is like the way you get the hit done. Like people were jumping and moving. I thought, listen, I'm going to aim middle of the body waist up. You can't move that part of your body quite as quick as your legs. So I just start throwing as hard as I physically can. And I'm just hitting people in the stomach, in the shoulders. Um, and they're, they're not, they're not impressed. I'm getting them out, but they don't seem very um, ready to declare me great by any stretch of the imagination. They seem to be getting angry at me as I eliminate them one after another. And then I just started thinking like, certainly when I clear everybody out of here, they will realize how amazing I am. There was one girl in particular that I was kind of avoiding because I, you know, kind of liked her. I was like, hey, how are you? I'm playing dodgeball. I'm clearing the wall. You're kind of impressed. And I thought, you know, I'll save her till the end so she can really see my amazing reign that's taking place. And so here it comes down to the end. She's the last one against the wall. And for a fleeting moment, I think maybe I should let her like catch the ball and let everybody in and let her be kind of the hero of this moment. And I thought, nah, I don't like her that much. And so instead, I thought I could probably do more to actually impress her by throwing the ball so hard that she physically cannot handle it. And then, then she would be like, wow this guy's awesome. And so in my very irrational um, train of thought, I aimed for her face and I threw the ball as hard as I physically could. And, um, and I hit her, I I hit her right, right square in the face and something incredible happened. Uh, Not only did it hit her in the face, uh, it threw her back against the brick wall and the back of her head hit the brick wall. Uh, with a tremendous force. And um, she fell to the ground and began crying and screaming. And uh, and everything went way different than I had expected. It was an entirely different experience than what I had played out in my mind. No one cheered me. Uh, in fact, they began yelling at me. They looked at me like, what is your problem? Um, everyone that I thought might actually lift me on their shoulders looked at me as if I was some type of villain moron. And uh, I ran over and was apologetic and I didn't mean to do that. And everyone's like, how can you not mean to do that? And it was just a devastating moment. But, um, you know, that's how I met Meredith. And no, <laughs> I'm just kidding. It wasn't it wasn't Meredith. Um, but it was when I was in college. No, that's a joke, too. I don't know why. I'm just kind of rambling. It was I was in elementary school and it was someone whose name I actually don't remember. And I just felt devastated. And I remember going into the into the classroom and my head was just hanging low and all my desires for greatness and this vision of of success just completely thrown by the wayside. I was devastated, absolutely gutted. I did everything I had planned and it did not come out the way I expected. So the question I want to ask us this morning as we move through the text is why do we want to be successful? Why do we want to be successful? I mean, sometimes everything goes exactly according to our plan, but it doesn't pay off 
Like success doesn't pay off all the time. So so why do we even want it? Why do we want to be successful? It's, it's a rather interesting question because if you think about it, before you can even really wrestle with the why, you have to first define what is successful. Like what is successful? Is successful being well-liked? Is that how you define it? Do you define success as being popular? Maybe some of you say, well, yeah, kind of, or maybe not. How about, how about if, if success is having the ability to get anything you want? Financial freedom. If I could just have financial freedom, then whew, that would be success. How about this? How about having positional authority? Power. That promotion you're looking for. Going to that college that you know, if you can go to that college, then you'll get some respect. If I can get that degree, then whew, that's success right there. How about having the freedom to rest all day? Success would just be no to-do lists. I mean, what is it? You get where I'm going here. Success is very subjective. We all have a definition of what success looks like, and it's different for every single one of us. It's largely defined even by culture, right? And I think about that because I've traveled internationally. And as I've traveled internationally at different places, I've gone into different communities, whether it was Peru or El Salvador within the last couple of years. You go there and you realize that their society and their culture, it functions so differently that even their definition of success versus the definition of success in the U.S., it's different. It's just a different definition of success. So it differs from person to person. It, it differs from culture to culture. And I want to say that even cultures have a changing definition of success over time. Think about it for a moment. Consider what the definition of success might have been in the United States in the 1700s. Then think about the definition of success in the 1800s. It had to change drastically. The 1900s, now we're in the 2000s. The definition of success now in the 2000s versus the difference of success defined in the 1700s right here in the same culture. It's totally different. It's just, it's so interesting that the de definition of success is forever changing. It's forever changing for societies and even for us personally. Think about that for a moment. Think about it when it comes to a personal thing. When I was a kid, when I was young, here was my definition of success. Overall, if I can think back to childhood, the first thing that comes to mind is being able to stay up late. Man, I would start my argument at like dinner time, you know? Uh, hey, so I got all my homework done for the weekend and um, you know, it is Saturday tomorrow, so I could sleep in. Like, do you think I could maybe stay up as late as I want tonight? I just remember moments that I was able to stay up past my bedtime and just being ecstatic. It was success. Like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. I get to stay up late. It never paid off. I mean, sometimes I fell asleep on the couch. Other times I was exhausted the following day. But that was my definition of success. Now, fast forward years. <laughs> and now my definition of success in regards to sleep is, man, if I could get a nap. If I could just swing in like an extra 10 minutes, if I could push snooze one more time, man, that would be success. Just a little more sleep, right? Isn't it interesting? Our definitions of success are ever-changing. Society, culture, personally, like every level, success is ever-elusive. So why? Why do we want to be successful? If it's ever-elusive, if it's always just be on the horizon, then why is it that we want it? 
I want to submit to you that we want to be successful, however we define that, because of our search for meaning. Our search for meaning. We want our one and only life to matter. We want what we want. That's defined as success, whether it means little Claude staying up as late as he wants or older Claude just trying to sneak in a nap. We want what we want. We know what we want because, because we've, we've done the work. We've felt the pain. We felt the sacrifice. And you know what? We want to explain to ourselves, to our loved ones, that the sacrifice, the difficulty, it was worth it. It was worth it because of the success and the freedom that we have now. That in some ways... We achieved a level of greatness in our eyes or in the eyes of others. We want to matter. It's part of being human. It's our condition. We all experience it as humans on some level, some to a very great extent, where sometimes we make sacrifices that we ought not make. And then others of us that would say, maybe we're, we're not quite pursuing the success the way other people are. But the fact is, every single one of us are leaning in to some pursuit, a sense of meaning in greatness. We pursue greatness. Is that a bad thing? Is it a bad thing? Well... I want to tell you that it depends on your definition. It depends on your definition. Let's see what what the Bible has to say about greatness and how the Bible defines greatness and even success. We pick up today's text uh, on the heels of Jesus correcting the disciples because of their self-reliance. They've tried to to do something under their own power, and Jesus has corrected them in the midst of that. And and now he again, as uh, as he's teaching them, he tells the disciples about his coming death and resurrection. And it's an ongoing conversation, if you've been with us for the last couple weeks, where the disciples at every turn try to avoid the concept that Jesus will have to suffer or that he'll have to die. It goes completely contrary to their expectations of greatness, of the Messiah, and Jesus, one more time, says it plainly. And so verse 31 says this, for he, meaning Jesus, was teaching his disciples, saying to them, and here we go, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Jesus is, is saying things very plainly. There's nothing cryptic about it. He is literally prophesying about what will take place. He's saying, listen, guys, this is the way it's going to play out. This is what's going to happen. And the disciples are confused. How is it possible? How is it possible that they're confused when Jesus has said the same thing consistently? And he has not steered away from it, implying that it's some type of parable or teaching or anything. He has consistently communicated it very plainly. This will happen. How is it possible that they're still confused? It's because it doesn't line up with their expectations. It doesn't line up with how they think things are going to play out. They've been taught that the Messiah will be great. That, that, that he is going to have greatness and success surrounding him. And so therefore, they will not deviate from that expectation. And of course, greatness and success, they, they go hand in hand. Their society had a, had a definition for success, and they had a personal expectation of how they would even benefit from that success and that greatness that Jesus was going to walk into. So they must not understand 
what Jesus really means, right? It's got to be that they're misunderstanding him, that there's something deeper that he's not clarifying because it runs too contrary to all of their expectations and preconceived ideas. I think sometimes when I'm on the back end of something, I think, how did I not see this playing out this way? Like, how, how did I not connect the dots? I think all too often we as humans get into this same rut where we have this idea, we have this perspective, this expectation, and it's somehow tied to our pursuit of success, our definition of greatness. And so because of that, it's like we're almost blind. It's like we have blind spots to the reality. That's what we have a front row seat to right here. Death just doesn't fit in to their expectations of success. Verse 32 goes on and says, they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him. So the disciples did not understand it. They just don't get it. But their expectations of success are still intoxicating. They're still just wrapped up so much into their pursuit of greatness that they actually start talking amongst themselves. They see and they comprehend that false narrative clearly. They see the way they want things to work out, and so they believe their own definition of reality. It's human nature to buy into the narrative of our own expectations. Now, let me clarify something. I need to clarify something that might seem like it's not connected at first, but bear with me because we need to understand that human nature uh, we need to understand human nature and that we can't uh, really understand human nature fully without talking about sin. And so I'm going to talk about sin for just a moment. And you might think, wait, what's the connection? We're talking about human nature, definition of success, greatness. And so we have to understand sin and you'll understand in a moment why. Sin is not something we do. It's our condition. Let me say that again. Sin is not something we do. It's our condition. As humans, our heart is sinful. And out of that, out of that, we make decisions and we do sinful things. But as humans, we are sinners. We are sinners. And if you proclaim to be a Christ follower, if you're a Christian, then you are a sinner saved by grace. We need to understand that because all too often we view sin as an external act, it's just something we do. And so as a result, we're a good person that sometimes makes bad choices. That sin's just a bad choice sometimes. And if it's an external act that's a, that's a bad choice and that we're ultimately a good person, then we don't process the depth of the problem that sin is. If sin is just an external thing, then one could simply just stop doing that. I'm going to stop making the bad decision. And so if I stop doing the sin act, then I'll behave. And by behaving, I solve my own sin problem. I can be the savior of my own life. See, I'm a good person that just chooses to do good things. And as a result, I'm okay. Everything's all right. But of course, the problem is greater than that. It runs far deeper. You see, the trap is to minimize and rationalize our sin. And in doing so, we minimize the grace of the cross. If we can solve our sin problem, then the cross was not necessary. So by minimizing and rationalizing our sin, 
we minimize the grace of the cross. The disciples don't understand their sin condition. They're so wrapped up in their pursuit of greatness and success that they don't understand their condition. How about you? How about you? Do you understand today the depth of the sin problem as as a human being? Have you really allowed the problem to, to come front and center? Are you so busy in pursuit of the definition that this world has for success and greatness that you're leveraging all your time, talent, treasure, effort, everything, leaning into, oh man, if I could just get that, oh then, hmm, then I would have success. Then people would respect me. Then I'd be lifted up on their shoulders and I'd be carried into greatness of the hallways, right? Listen. It's only in truly understanding our depravity. It's only in truly understanding the problem and the hopeless condition that we can ultimately process the magnitude of what it is that Jesus did for us. While we were his enemy, the word of God says, while we were enemies of God, he took our penalty. He solved our problem. He died the death that we deserve. He closed the gap between us and God, not because of our behavior, not because of what it is that we offer, but because he loves us, because he first loved us, because you're valuable, because you're loved. As messed up as you are, as sinful as you are, God loved you so much that he sent his one and only son to die the death that you deserve. We have to grasp the depth of that so we can be filled with greater success expectations. We have to adjust what it is that we think success really is. Because of his grace, not because of our behavior, but because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, our human nature kind of resists this. It resists the the idea that we're in some way hopeless or the depravity of our own situation. But I want to tell you in in the quietness of your own mind, I think you can fathom that. You might not want to admit it. And the irony is we're all in the same boat, but we don't, we don't want to kind of be vulnerable and lower our own, um, I don't know, our own self-perception or the perception we have that we want others to have of us. And so as a result, we kind of protect and we act like we have things together. But if, if in the quietness of our own mind, we allow ourselves to realize the wickedness of our own heart, the way we say we won't do something only to do it, the way that we say that that thing won't have a hold in our lives only to reveal that it still does, the wickedness of our thoughts, the things we do and say that we wish we had not done or we ought not say. We have to, to come to grips with that. And, and as our human nature resists that, I want to tell you, the disciples resisted it as well. It's part of the reason why they don't get it and why sometimes we don't get it. After everything that Jesus has disclosed to the disciples, everything he has laid out plainly for them about his death and resurrection, they are literally arguing about which of them is the greatest. That's what we see in the text here. In fact, Jesus even asks them, hey, so what were you talking about? 
They're like, uh. Verse 34. Verse 34 says this. Jesus says, what were you discussing along the way, as I mentioned? And then verse 34 is their response. But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So Jesus is laying out for them the redemption story. He's talking about his death and ultimate resurrection. And the way they're responding to that is to argue amongst themselves who is the greatest. They're intoxicated with the idea of success. They, like us, are intoxicated with the idea of success. So much so that it's, it's blinding them to what's taking place right before them. Their expectations are, are overrunning reality. They don't want to admit it. And maybe we don't want to admit it. But they are obsessed with being successful. You see, their conversation is actually revealing their condition. They are literally illustrating why the cross is necessary. Why it's necessary, because in and of ourselves, we just think of self. We pursue self. Sin reveals our pursuit of greatness. Sin makes everything about us about what we want, what it is I deserve, what it is that I think I need. Listen, I need this. I deserve this. This is about me. That's why when we even achieve any form of success by the world's standards, it feels good for a moment, but then it's fleeting because it's all about us. It's about the moment that we can get the attention or the moment that we can have an idea of self-worth. And I know that some of you are like, I don't want any attention. I want to be behind the scenes. But you want to know that your one and only life matters. That what it is that you do matters. That the, the effort that you put in has a lasting impact. The pain, the hurt, that it was worth it. That the work all adds up to something greater than yourself. We say at the end of the day, we want our will. That's why sometimes we shake our fist at God and we're mad because things are not working out according to our expectations. Oh, my will. I mean, isn't life really about me being happy? Isn't that interesting? I think that that's what the culture would say. Culture would probably say, listen, you only live once. Just, just do it. Like, just do whatever you want. Just lean in and enjoy life. This is about you. But it doesn't actually deliver ever, Right? If it's about me being happy, I mean, of course not. Of course this life can't be about me being happy. If it's that shallow and that easy to buy into, then the reality is we should find some sense of fulfillment when we get the things that we think success will bring. But we never do. We never do. People that, that have full bank accounts want them more full. People that have amazing things want more amazing things. And in our society of comparison and looking at others, we just continually strive and strive. The person that gets the promotion wants the next promotion. The person that owns the company wants another company. The people that are, are happy with their relationship, they're not sure that that relationship's really serving them well enough right now. So maybe they need to end that relationship to find one that really does serve them. The list goes on. The, the illustrations are endless. 
because we, we put everything into this idea of success and greatness and we still and always want something more. Get this, success by the world standards never delivers. Never delivers and is ever changing. Listen, the point is this. If we were there, if we were sitting with the disciples, if we were walking alongside them, we would be part of this argument. As human beings, we would be arguing about how we're actually the greatest. We would be part of this conversation. We can look at the disciples and we can say, oh my gosh, how are they missing it? But the reality is we're missing it because we're in the same situation. It's our condition as humans. And we need to have greater success expectations. So what is a biblical definition of success? What is it? Verse 35. And he sat down, being Jesus. Jesus sat down and called the 12. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. You want to be the greatest. If anybody would be first... He must be the last of all and servant of all. Now get this. Success, contrary to cultural societal belief, isn't about power. It's not about stuff. It's not about money. It's not even about position. Success is actually attached to servanthood. To servanthood. Now I don't mean serve others so you feel better about yourself because that remains you being you. I'm not talking about being philanthropic. No, it's not about my greatness. Servanthood is not about my greatness. It's about acknowledging and being transformed by the greatness of God. In other words, God has done the work. How does that happen? I mean, is that something you just say? You're just like, I get it now. Mm, it's not about me. It's about God. I think I've done it. Am I great now? Am I great? Did I do it? This is how. It means realizing our own depravity. It means coming face to face with the depravity and the sin nature of our lives and deciding I will not be the center of my own life. This isn't about me. This isn't about my will. It's not about what I want, what I need, how I think it should go. It's not about my expectations. No, it's about greater expectations. It's about God being in the center. It's about making a decision to say, I will not be the middle of my life. I will ask Jesus to be the Lord and leader of my life, not simply in a prayer, but in everyday function and in practice to where it informs the way I spend my money, the way I spend my time, the decisions I make, where I go, where I don't go, what I engage in and what I don't. Not because I'm trying to behave, but because I've been transformed by the truth of the gospel. And that has helped me understand the greatness of God and the definition of what true success is and what it means when Jesus says, I want you to live life and life to the fullest. Life to the fullest is greatness. It is success and it's defined as God in the center and God's will be done. In fact, Jesus modeled it. Jesus modeled it when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he sat there and the word of God says that he was praying and literally drops of blood were coming out of his pores because he was in such turmoil and anguish. But he said, not wanting to go to the cross in his flesh, but 
in the reality of what it is that needed to be done for you and for me, he said, not my will, God, but your will. And he walked the death that we deserved and had victory over death and sin and is victorious and imparts that upon us. He modeled it. God's will be done. It's a decision. But here's the deal. Jesus doesn't just stop there with the disciples. Just in case the disciples kind of aren't connecting the dots and in case we're missing it still today, he illustrates servanthood. He illustrates it in verse 37. He goes on and he says this, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So this passage has actually been preached and taught on quite a bit. And that's fine. And, and um, he's definitely uh, increasing the value of children in a society where children are kind of pushed down. And there's a lot of different ways that you could go with, with this text if you're just kind of pulling it out to teach on it. But I want us to consider the text in context for a moment. Children in their society were insignificant. No social status whatsoever. Jesus is breaking social norms here by, by bringing this child into center attention. A child is powerless, has very little belongings, dependent upon others. Listen, the point is this. A child brings nothing to the table. A child brings nothing to the table. What Jesus is saying is that greatness is servanthood, which means there's nothing in it for you. There's nothing in it for you. That's what servanthood is. That's completely countercultural. It's counterintuitive. It goes against every part of our being. How do we function with nothing in it for me? How do I do that? Christ followers ought to serve and love, expecting nothing in return. Think about that. Christ followers ought to serve in love, expecting nothing in return. I'm not saying that, that when worldly success comes your way, that in somehow you need to resist that and say, oh, it's, it's sinful, it's sinful. I, I, I can't get that promotion. I can't move forward. I can't have nice stuff. I can't, no, no, no. I'm not saying that. I'm not talking about worldly success coming your way and you resisting it in some bizarre, guilt-ridden way. I'm talking about your heart condition. I'm talking about taking everything that comes your way and putting it in perspective of a greater expectation of the mission that God has us on. And to put it in with, with handles that don't, don't have you in the center where it's pursuit of more, pursuit of more. I continue to strive. Instead, be content with what it is that God has provided. And when more comes, realize it's part of a mission. It's part of something that God has blessed you with for a purpose and a reason. And, and to pray and to consider what does it look like, God? Why is this coming into my life? How can I leverage this towards the furtherance of your kingdom? With my one and only life, how can I live for you? Your will not mine. You see, if and when we experience success by the world's standards, we put that in its right place with God in the center. God, your will. Your will. This is not because we should do this. 
So hear me on that. I'm not saying Christians should do this because that turns into you just trying, right? And striving and being like, okay, I will be a great Christian. I will be successful in being a Christian. And you can lean in and so you can have the wrong motives doing right. Ah, like what? It's because it's a, a heart condition. We can lean very easily and say, okay, I'm going to be the best Christian I can be. Oh my gosh, it's exhausting. And guess what? That never delivers either because you're pursuing the wrong thing. No, it's not because we should, but rather because we realize our depravity and we realize that we are graciously loved and have been amazingly served. It's because of what Christ has done that we are able to love and serve. So it's about speaking the truth of the gospel to ourselves. I can love because I am loved. I can serve because God has served me. And so I'm not conjuring it up. I'm being transformed by the truth of the gospel. And so that's what this text is about. That's what Jesus is trying to tell the disciples. Will you quit being so intoxicated by the the world's system and lean into the kingdom of God? Will you love and serve because Jesus has loved and served you? We say every week that the text requires something of us. And so I have a challenge for you this week. That this week, you'd intentionally serve others out of love for them and Jesus. Intentionally serve others out of love for them and Jesus. I want you to, to look for opportunities to live on mission. And now you might hear that this week and say, I, I, I can't, I can't try to love and serve from a place that I haven't experienced that love from God myself. And so if you're out there and you have not asked Jesus to be the center of your life, to be the Lord and leader of your life, and you're still kind of sitting on the the throne of your own life, it's as simple as praying a prayer and asking him to be the Lord and leader of your life. You can pray something like this wherever you may find yourself as you're hearing this or watching. A simple prayer, just acknowledging the fact that you are a sinner and that Jesus died for your sins. Ask him to forgive you to be the Lord and leader, that he would be the center of your life that begins a relationship. In fact, if you've prayed that prayer right now and you're live with us, I want to encourage you to just click on request a prayer and uh, you'll go into a private chat with one of our hosts and they'll just walk you through some next steps. And uh, we'd love to have that conversation with you. If you're listening or watching later, you can reach out to us through our uh, email address or through our website. And we would love to just walk alongside you as you navigate what it looks like to put Jesus in the center of your life. For others of you that have already prayed that prayer, that have already crossed that line of salvation, do you you function in a way that is clear you know that you are loved and served? Have you allowed the truth of the gospel to transform you daily? Daily. Oh my gosh, it has to be daily because as much as we are sanctified at the moment of salvation, sanctification is also an ongoing process and our hearts are desperately wicked and we will lean towards our humanity unless we continually say, God, will you walk with me today? Will you reveal the places that I can love and serve others? As a parent, maybe you need to intentionally love and serve your children. Maybe as a spouse, maybe as a child towards a parent, maybe it means a coworker, maybe it means an enemy, someone that is just against you in every way. And yet you're going to show them love. Why? Because while you were an enemy of God, he loved you. You see, we have to be transformed by the truth. For others of us, 
I just want to challenge you, if you live that way every day, if, if you've been sitting there saying yes and amen to all of this, the text still requires something of you. And so for you, maybe it means leveraging the worldly success that you have towards the mission and purpose of God in new and different ways, in innovative ways. To take some God risks and to say, you know what, I'm going to put my, my money where my mouth is. I'm going to put my time where, my, where, where it is that I say I want to spend time. I'm going to lean into the things of God and I'm going to tell the Lord I am available and willing. And I'm going to leverage everything towards the furtherance of my one and only life because of the purpose and mission that he has for me. Let's live on mission together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. And we ask that you would just reveal to us what it is that we should be leaning into, whether it's for our personal relationship with you, if it means um, allowing the truth of the gospel to transform the relationships that we have with others, that we would be people that, that are servants, that live in a way that, that we love and serve others because we are loved and served. Or Lord, if it, if it means something outside of the box today, something we haven't even considered yet, and yet your Holy Spirit is whispering to us that we would take a God risk, live on mission in a unique way. Lord, we simply declare ourselves available for your glory and even for our joy, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Excited to have been with you and uh, can't wait till next week we continue in the series, Greater Expectations. We'll see you then. Thanks everyone for gathering today. That was a great week four of this Greater Expectation series. We're gonna get to worship through song in a minute if you're gathered live, but we also encourage you to worship by staying engaged throughout the week and taking time to apply God's word. Definitely. Intentionally serving others out of love for them and Jesus is a great way to worship. Now you may need to take some time to reflect on God's love for you and to search your heart to make sure your motivation for serving is in line with the text. And for sure, be intentional about serving others in love. Like Meredith said, we're about to worship together through song if you're with us live. If you're connecting at another time, you can still worship through song by finding the video posted on Facebook or singing along with the songs on Spotify. Just search for Centerway Church and look for the new Greater Expectations playlist. For those gathered on the online platform, we'll see you live on Facebook or Instagram in a few minutes.